Hi, I'm Pastor Brian, and welcome to Session 3 of Healing an Ethnically Wounded Nation, part of the Faith and Culture series at Bridgeway Christian Church. To briefly recap where we've been so far, Session 1 was all about history, and then Session 2 was all about modern-day concerns. In this session, we're going to pause and ask the question, God, what do you have to say about all of this? We're going to do an in-depth Bible study to see what the scriptures can tell us about engaging with these controversial issues. And then next session is the rubber meets the road session. We're going to talk about what do we do about all of this? How can we take what we have learned and put it into action? This is a good time to pause briefly and address part of the purpose of doing this series. When this content was first presented at Bridgeway Christian Church, we received all sorts of positive feedback. But we also received a few comments that said things like, this material feels very unbalanced, or what about the other side? So we just want to be clear about what we're trying to do and what we're not trying to do in this series. First of all, we're not trying to be balanced. We're not trying to talk about this painful and difficult subject from every possible angle. Instead, what we're trying to do is address the fact that throughout the history of our country, the dominant majority, intentionally or not, has perpetrated injustice upon various minorities. So we want to encourage those of us who are in the majority to be the first to come to the table to say, I'm willing to listen. I'm willing to hear these painful stories. I'm willing to change, and I'm willing to be part of the solution. Because the fact of the matter is, whether we are dealing with interpersonal conflict or with broad social challenges, if all we are doing is waiting for other people to change, then nothing ever changes. Instead, when we can come to the table and say, I want to own my part in this, I don't want to be defensive. I want to listen, and I want to learn, and I want to change. That's when real change is possible. We also want you to know that the material being presented is extremely well researched. We had a team here at Bridgeway that spent an entire year digging through academic research and relevant data. So if you find the information that is being presented challenging, we believe an appropriate response is to look at some of the resources we have provided at faithandculture.church so that you can do some of the research yourself. Does the fact that this material is well-researched make it 100% correct? No, it does not. But in saying it's well-researched, we're simply saying that those presented have done their homework. They are seeking to follow the truth wherever it leads, and we believe that is worthy of respect. We hope you enjoy this session as we dig into the scriptures and see God's heart on how we can be part of healing an ethnically wounded nation. Well, hello, my family. Good to see you. Um, we're going to dive right into this, and I want to begin by saying that we are biased in the sense that we are Christians. Therefore, we have a biblical Christian worldview. Now, we're going to say phrases like, uh, in God's word, or that God says, and so I want to back up a little bit, because not everybody watching this or walking through this material necessarily has the same view. But to us, the only opinion that really matters is that of God. What does God think? 
well, how are we, how are we ever going to know what God thinks? In a sense, we know that, at least in the Old Testament, it says that, that God is unknowable, but yet he set up a system in the Old Testament that said he was very much pro-justice, is that the entire Israelite system was based on laws and codes to keep things healthy and right and good. Can we ever know now in more modern day what God's will is? What does the Father want? Interestingly enough, John the Apostle said this in John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Who's he referring to? Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, Jesus tells us in John 14, 8 through 11, he tells this story. Philip, one of his followers, said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. In other words, if we want to know the heart of God, we look at the life of Jesus. If we want to know what God thinks, what was Jesus talking about? If we want to know how God would act, we look at the lifestyle and actions of Jesus Christ. Being called Christians is to be a mimic or a copycat of Jesus. So everything that you're going to hear when we talk about the biblical mandate, what we believe that God wants in this world from his followers, this is our background. Now, to transition, I would say this, that along the way, church has had various eras and different uh, manifestations. There's times that we've been into this and times that we've been into that. There's times that we were focused in this area and times that we've been focused in other areas. In this particular genre, I would just say this, the traditional black church of which you're going to hear about in a moment from Bishop. The traditional black church has always fused Christianity and social justice because they cannot do otherwise. To speak of one is to speak of the other. However, a majority of white churches in history, because they had the option to make it theoretical, which is, oh, I heard there's troubles, they don't affect me directly, since there was an opportunity to make it theoretical, have allowed it to become theoretical, and social justice and gospel became separate. Now, truth and doctrine, those words have been rightfully burned into the minds of Christians throughout history. Bad things happen when we lose the essence of the gospel and trade truth for mere kindness. There was a time in a not too distant history where the church wanted to be so socially action-minded, they left the truth of the gospel behind and focused on only being another charity organization. 
The white church, through the option of letting social action go, unfortunately, the majority swung the pendulum to the opposite side, began to vilify the gospel social action as a competing vision. And I believe at that moment, God's heart broke once again. The true gospel is both. We need good thoughts and we need good works. We need to believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior and live that truth out into action. Truth and doctrine is critical. If we lose it, we uproot our anchor and drift with the tides of society. However, action and good works are the other side of the gospel. Without it, the gospel is not the full gospel. There must not simply be good thoughts, there must be good works as well, or the faith that we say that we have is a lie. James said, faith without works is what? Dead. Jesus taught on how things will go when he returns. For example, in Matthew 25, he says when he returns in his glory, he is going to separate out true believers From false believers, he will gather those that are his on one side and those that do not walk with him, those that do not know him, those that are not true believers on the other side. Now, we would assume that because we know that we are saved by faith and that we are saved by grace, we would assume that he would say, those that have prayed a prayer come over here. We would probably assume that those who believe this way come over here. Yet here's the story he tells. Then the king will say, Jesus said, to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit a kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. He will then say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And they will answer, saying, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty, a stranger or naked or sick or in prison, and we didn't minister to you? And he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, As you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Interesting that though saved by grace through faith, the separator was demonstrated by action. Why? Because true faith always results in action. The actions do not save, but they are evidence that the heart is right. Hmm. I want to give a warning over and over to all sides of any issue if we are going to be talking about what is right, if we're going to be talking about what is Christian. We must keep the full gospel central. We must not be driven by politics, 
We must not be driven by other people forcing us to take sides, dogmatic theological positions. That is not where we need to live. You see, Jesus controlled the narrative in his day. Everyone in his day in power wanted to tell him what he should and should not do. Everyone in power wanted to tell him what was right and what was wrong. They wanted to tell him what side he should be on. And because Jesus didn't follow that, he was labeled a drunkard, a glutton. He was told not to hang out with tax collectors and sinners, yet he did. He was branded a heretic and a blasphemer because he refused to go along with the power structure's social narrative. Why? Because he had a higher authority that said, I will do what my father tells me regardless of what you think. I'm going to challenge you to make sure that you are not allowing society structures to pigeonhole you and force you into what you should and should not believe. For example, I will stand here as a man of God to tell you that I am allowed to love and honor black and white. I'm allowed to be pro-police and pro-African-American. I refuse to allow someone to tell me that if I am one, I am not the other. That is incorrect. My Jesus tells me a different way. I will tell you that I'm allowed to have a heart for illegal immigrants and justice. Don't tell me I have to pick. It's an and for me. I'm allowed to gain insight from all political sides. Why? Because Jesus rises above it all. Bishop? Beloved, one of the things that you have heard me share with you frequently is that I am proud of the heritage that I am a part of, my legacy, that which has poured into my life. I unapologetically embrace the fact that it is the black community and specifically the black church that has helped to shape my thinking, has helped to shape, as you will hear in a moment, the theology that I espouse. And yet, what is unique and beautiful about the relationship that I share with many of you here and those of you that are part of this particular congregation is the fact that I stand before you as part of the movement that I believe the Holy Spirit is doing in the ministry of reconciliation. The, the fact that, as I was sharing with someone just a few moments ago, that I am here and that I embrace you as family. You embrace me as family. It, it is suggesting that God is, again, doing a great work. And yet, it calls for us to continue to have the discomfort of the conversations that we've been holding and having the past few sessions and the one we will have in our next session. Let me back up for just a moment and give you, if I may, an opportunity to look through the lens of that which has helped to shape my life and help to shape the ministry that may surprise you as you hear some of these things for many of you for the first time, it would suggest something different than many of us have thought in regards to the context of the black church or later what we reference as black 
theology or black liberation theology as some have termed it. I am a child product of Shiloh Baptist Church in Sacramento, one of the oldest African-American churches on the West Coast. It is the second oldest African-American church uh, just under St. Andrew's African Methodist Episcopal Church in Sacramento. And so the church that I came out of, that I was a part of, is now nearly 170 years old. It is the church that, uh, for you who have studied his writings, that Cornell West, Dr. Cornell West, a uh, great professor at Harvard and also at Yale and Princeton, that he was a part of. In fact, his, his mother and father were my Sunday school teachers. So I was brought up, again, under the tutelage of great men and great women. But I often tell people it was Pastor Willie P. Cook, who as our pastor, shared with the community week after week with a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other hand. It was his full intent to tie the scriptures to the events of today, what we were experiencing. And at that time, it would have been the 60s and then the 70s that we were going through the things that we were experiencing as a nation through the civil rights movement, et cetera. One of the passages that I remember as a child hearing that has stuck with me, and it was emphatically stated in messages from time to time under Pastor Cook's tutelage, is found in Matthew 22, 36 through verse 40. And it reads, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? The lawyer is asking Jesus this question, what is the great commandment? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. With all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and, and the prophets. And, and, and again, I want to place emphasis on that passage where it speaks of you shall love the Lord God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all your mind. I'll never forget, there was a man by the name of James Cone, I will quote him in just a moment, who when he quoted that scripture, and I heard it years later in college, he had this real irritating, squeaky voice. He just recently went to be with the Lord, but he had an irritating, squeaky voice. He was known as being the, the father of black theology or the father of black liberation theology. And he says, we must understand that you must love God with all of your heart, your soul, and your mind. <laughs> and he was emphatic about that, that we must love God with our mind. That stuck with me because I had no problem understanding the, necess- the, the need to love God with my heart, I do, and love God with my soul, I do, but the importance of also loving him with our minds, how we think. And this then gives some backdrop to the emergence of the black church. Why the black church? The black church represents the entity of the homogenous gathering of those of African-American descent. The term black church has its origins uniquely within America. 
There are other homogenous expressions of worship and gatherings all around the world. However, the term black church is distinctive to America and for specific reasons. The black church of America was not only a gathering of the community, but it was the arena, listen to this, of political life for those who led black Americans. We often speak of politics being separate from the church, but in the black church context, politics was a part of the church. It was a part of ministry. It's how they viewed, again, life. Uh, it has been said, and it is true, for many and most black Americans in a period of time in this history of our nation, the one place that they could go and they could be affirmed as leaders was within the church itself. That's one of the reasons why the pastor, even in many circles today, within the African-American context, is seen in a very, very strong leadership role and position within the church. It's not just the church, but he is also the one who represents the community. So there is a reverence, there is a homage that is given to those who are considered to be pastors or those who are in leadership. Listen to what E. Franklin Frazier says in his observation. For the Negro masses, in their social and moral isolation in America society, the Negro church community has been a nation within a nation. It's not just coming and having two songs, a scripture reading, prayer, and preaching but it is a nation, the black church was considered to be a nation, a gathering, a strong gathering within a nation. He goes on to say black churches were organizational sites for social and political activities center, uh, centered around the discussion of economic development and growth. Albert J. Roboto says, as microcosms of the larger society, Black churches provided an environment free of oppression and of racism for African Americans. In black churches, African Americans were consistently exposed, and I emphasize consistently exposed to social, political, and economic opportunities equally. The first uh, recorded documentation of an established black church was in 1778. It is not to suggest that there were not black churches prior to that, but the first recording of an institutionalized black church was in 1778. And the black church, it must be noted, emerged due to the following. An oppressive society, a desire to reflect upon how God interfaces with his people, it also, thirdly, was established for connection, for community. Fourth, it was established for the affirmation of a collective and anti-utilitarian people, culture. Five, it was established as the center of political acceptance and expression. If you couldn't be important anywhere else, you could be important in the church. People who were not considered to be valuable outside the four walls of the church held positions within the black church, and they wore that cap proudly. 
They, there was something about Robert's rules of order, being able to say, all in favor, say aye, and be elected into a role or a position. When we speak of the black church, the black church, is, as, as I've stated before, as is black America, it is not monolithic. It is diverse. The black church is diverse. It represents various denominations, structures, polity, leadership styles, and yet what is the foundation for all black churches or those who identify themselves as black churches is the adherence to the need to respond to a society that has rejected it in the past. I've often had people tell me, well, there's not a black church and a white church or a yellow church or a red church. But again, as you remember our discussion regarding the subject of being colorblind, to, to reject and to dismiss the institution of the black church is to dismiss a full perspective and experience and that which has sustained a people for centuries cannot be dismissed. We must understand that. And, and from this idea or this, this entity of the black church later would emerge what is referred to as black theology. As a result of societal marginalization, black theology emerged to address, again, the, uh, the tension that was present due to racism and, again, the rejection of people's humanity. There's a three-fold context of the origin of what we call black theology. One, the civil rights movement of the 1950s and the 60s, largely associated with Dr. Martin Luther King, not exclusively associated with Dr. Martin Luther King. Many people forget that there were multitudes of men and women who were a part of the, not only the civil rights movement prior to Dr. King, but they set the platform for Dr. King to have the exposure that he had. So again, the, the context of this black theology emerged out of the civil rights movement of the 50s and the 60s. And then secondly, the publication of Joseph Washington's book, Black Religion of 1964. And then third, the rise of the black power movement, strongly influenced by Malcolm X's philosophy of black nationalism. So again, you had the black church even prior to that which was identified as black theology. James Cone, whom I mentioned just a moment ago, he makes this statement, and I quote, from the beginning, black theology has understood by its creators, it was understood by its creators as Christian theological reflection upon the black struggle for justice and liberation, strongly influenced by the life and thought of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. When King and other black church persons began to relate the Christian gospel to the struggle for racial justice in American society, the great majority of white churches and their theologians denied that such a relationship existed. Conservative white Christians claim that religion and politics did not mix. Liberal white Christians, with few exceptions during the 1950s and early 60s, remained silent on the theme, or they advocated a form of gradual gradualism that denounced boycotts, denounced sit-ins, 
and freedom rides and other forms of protests. Man, that doesn't sound very different than what we hear today. People are fine as long as we have just nice prayer meetings and gatherings and so forth. But when we talk about protesting or we talk about doing something in demonstration, it is considered to be militant, radical. Again, black theology has no problem embracing all of that. Because blacks receive little or no theological support from white churches and their theologians, blacks themselves had to search deeply into their own history in order to find a theological basis for their prior political commitment to liberate the black poor. They found such support through individuals such as uh, Pastor uh, Robert Bishop Robert Allen, the founder of the African Methodist Episcopal, Episcopal Church of 1816, Henry Highland Garnett, a Presbyterian preacher who urged slaves to resist slavery, Nat Turner, a Baptist preacher that led in a deadly insurrection, and Henry McNeil Turner, who in 1898 claimed that God, surprise, surprise, is a Negro. <laughs> the theology was designed to counter the cognitive dissidence observed through Euro-American theological perspective. That's why it was designed. The theology sought self-affirmation amidst a societal construct that dehumanized millions of people. Thus, black power affirmed worth and value. That was the purpose of it. It affirmed that you are important, you are valuable, God does have a plan for you. The black power affirmed worth and value, therefore black clergy put alongside this idea of black power a theology, a movement that underscored the foundational principles that govern many black congregations today. I close my segment with these thoughts. Many of you probably grew up in the era that I did. Do you remember this show? How many of you remember the show Good Times? But there was a particular segment I saw it the other night where they had good times on, and J.J., who's one of the sons, paints a picture of a black Jesus. Some of you remember that? He paints a black Jesus, and he puts the black Jesus up on the wall next to the white Jesus, and all of a sudden, good things start happening for the family. And at some point, they remove the white Jesus off the wall, much to Florida's frustration. She says, I've always had white Jesus on the, on the wall. It's always been good for me to have white Jesus on the wall. We don't have to change now. But when all these good things start happening, they decide, no, we're going to keep black Jesus on the wall. Now, what they didn't know until later, they found out that the model, the person that was used to paint the, uh, the depiction of black Jesus was Ned the wino. <laughs> And at the time I was watching that, you know, we're laughing at it and so forth, but I did not realize there were some messages that were hidden behind that. Black Jesus was actually Ned the wino, who was used as the model. And when we speak again of black theologians, they really believed that the major importance of the claim that Jesus is black rested on the symbolic meaning of that affirmation. It was the black theologian's way to say that the cross and resurrection of Jesus represented God's solidarity with the oppressed in their struggle for liberation. They never denied the universal significance of Jesus' death and resurrection. Their early fathers simply wanted to emphasize 
the theological significance of Jesus in the context of black liberation struggle in the United States of America. It was used to expose, listen to this, it was used to expose the racism that was in the American church and also encourage black churches to embrace the biblical Christ who looks more like the oppressed blacks than white oppressors. That was the purpose. It was a radical means by which attention would draw the reality that Jesus identifies with the poor, the marginalized, and oppressed people. Just the lens of how many within the black church view God. So what does God say? What, what are we supposed to do? You see, Jesus addressed the issue of racism in his day in many different ways, but one of them was through a famous story called the Good Samaritan. Most of you are familiar with that story. It basically goes like this. There was a Jewish man that was coming down from Jerusalem down to Jericho. He ended up getting taken over by some robbers. They beat him up, left him almost dead on the side of the road. Along the way came a priest. The priest, who would have been the most wealthy, who would have been the most able to help, who would have been the leadership, not only did he not stop, he passed over on the other side of the road and he kept walking. Soon thereafter came a Levite who was a priestly helper. He too, following in the same fashion as the leadership before him, who should have stopped, did not stop, went to the other side and passed on. Normally, this story that they would tell parables in the ancient day, they would say there was a priest, there was a Levite, and there was a Jewish layman. Everyone was waiting for the Jewish layman to show up in the story, but Jesus spun it on him. He said, and then came a Samaritan. Now, the racism between Jews and Samaritans was extreme. So extreme, they wouldn't even go through their territory. They would go all the way around the outside. We'll talk about that in a moment. Jesus brought in the hated Samaritan, the other race, and said when he came upon this beaten up man, he did not see race, he saw a wounded individual. That man got down on his hands and knees, used all of his own wealth, all of his own supplies, began to wash and take care of him, put him up on his own animal, took him into an inn, provided about a week and a half's worth of money to care for this man. As he left, he said, if he needs any more, put it on my tab. I'll pay you when I come back through. Now, Jesus said, go and do likewise. What was the point? Don't you dare allow racism or anything else, any prejudice, anything else to blind you from another human being suffering. That we are all in this together, that we all help each other out, we all get involved, we get engaged. I've come to the conclusion that other people's pain is our problem. Why? Because we are Christians. There is hurting in our world, and I think that that hurts God, and I think that we may well be able to do something about it. I think that is why we have gathered. As a matter of fact, Jesus became famous in Matthew 7, 12 for the golden rule, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. The question then becomes, how would you want Jesus to move people to step into your situation? Shouldn't we then do that for other people? Become involved. 
I think that for many of us, we think that racism and prejudice is a new situation. Unfortunately, it's not. It's all over Scripture. I told you a little bit about the Samaritans and the Jews, but you also need to remember the Jews and the Gentiles. Jews didn't like Gentiles. Gentiles didn't like Jews. As a matter of fact, you don't touch their stuff. You don't get their heebie-jeebies on you. You just stay away, right? But do you remember that Moses' wife, Zipporah, was not an Israelite? And as a matter of fact, his brother and sister, Miriam and Aaron, wanted nothing to do with her. They didn't want him to have a wife outside of the nation. They were terrible to her. Edom, which was the traditional brother group of the Israelites, refused to help them as they marched through the land in the desert wanderings because they now saw them as distinct Northern Israel hated southern Judah. There's always been groups hating other groups. If you remember the story of Esther, Haman had a plan to do ethnic cleansing to wipe out all Jews. He was their Hitler of that day. And it keeps going on and on. Even in the New Testament, there was a distribution of food to what? The Greek and then the Hebrew widows. And there was a big battle of saying that one was being favored over another. The apostles got involved and had to fix it. But perhaps the most scary story about racism for me in Scripture or prejudice for me is in Luke 9, 51. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, meaning he was going to close up his ministry and head and die on the cross. He sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans. Remember, Jesus is a Jew to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. In other words, the Samaritan said, if you're gonna go help them, we don't want you with us. And they rejected Jesus out of their village. It was so extreme that we see in verse 54, when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus turned, rebuked them, and went to another village. In other words, his guys were saying, how dare they reject you? Let's burn them all. And Jesus said, y'all are being stupid, and moved on. I think that that's why the Bible is full of stories of unity and reconciliation. I think one of the neat stories was when the Jews were coming into the promised land. There was 12 tribes. Two of them settled on one side of the Jordan, All the other 10 were supposed to settle on the other side. Well, one side got settled first. Reuben and Gad got their territory, but all the other 10 didn't. So they made an agreement, and they said, because you're our brothers, we will go into the territory with you, even though ours is already settled. We will not rest until you have rest. I understand that our home is peaceful, but yours is not. So we will fight with you to make sure that your home looks like our home. How beautiful is that? I think all of us know the story of Ruth, right? Where we always think, man, she was super sweet to her mother-in-law, Naomi. I think you forget of the racism of the story. She's not from Israel. She's not welcome in Israel. She was a Moabitess. Her going in to take care of her mother-in-law was a risk to her life, and she lost everything in pursuit of that. God blessed her, but she didn't know that was going to happen. It reminds me of Galatians 6. It says we should bear one another's burdens. 
I know that your burden is your burden, my burden is my burden, but I think that Jesus is saying, maybe your burden needs to be my burden, and maybe my burden needs to be yours. Here's how I believe that God addresses things. I believe God has a high value for unity. I think he will go to extreme lengths to try to be, bring people together that don't like each other. Um, I've never heard this taught before. I'm sure that many other preachers maybe and theologians have come up with this, but it happened to strike me um, one day, and it was so eye-opening. And it was the idea that when the Holy Spirit came upon the church, we all think of it as Pentecost, and there was many nations. God gathered everybody together, and all of a sudden, everybody was getting the blessing, but then they all went home. If you remember, the Holy Spirit was not given to the Gentiles until the Jews got there. Why? Because I believe it was a unity issue. I believe that if the Holy Spirit would have fallen on the Gentiles, they would have called it a Gentile thing and said it was bogus. But God waited for the Jews to come in contact. They would lay their hands upon them. Then the Holy Spirit fell. In the same way, he did not give it to the Samaritans until the Jews got there. Why? Because the Jews would consistently challenge and say it was bogus. But when the Jews came, the Holy Spirit fell. Over and over, God forces unity and forces unity and forces unity. Another thing that I think is so beautiful is if you look at the end of the story in the book of Revelation, you see that John the Revelator saw this massive group before the throne. He couldn't even count the number, but he said they're from every tribe, tongue, and nation. How did he know that? Because they looked different. Everyone didn't come into one homogenous nothing. Everyone wasn't, un, you know, disembodied orbs. They wore the beautiful colors of their countries and nations. They brought in their tribal and ethnic backgrounds, and they were seen as glorious, as diverse, but unified. I think that is what God wants. So, I say this. I believe that there is one particular story that highlights exactly what we ought to do. I think it's very appropriate for this particular subject matter, and that's the story of Philemon and Onesimus. Quick story. Onesimus was a slave, non-believing slave, owned by a Christian man that Paul knew. That slave ran away, and he ended up with Paul, ended up getting saved, ended up becoming a huge help to Paul, but one day they had a conversation. He said, buddy, you got to go home and make it right. I can't imagine how difficult that was, but they agreed. Paul said, but I'm not going to let you go home and make it right by yourself. I'm going to write you a letter. In that letter, the book of Philemon in Scripture, he says, he says to Philemon, I need you to receive him as a brother. I need you to set him free. I need you to send him back into the ministry because I am sending you my very heart. He said, if he owes you anything, put it on my tab. He did the same thing as the good Samaritan did. He interjected himself into a situation he did not have to. He didn't have to allow Onesimus to come in and be his partner. He didn't have to write a letter. He didn't have to go back and put himself on the line, but he pushed and pushed and pushed until things were right. He used his power and privilege and prestige and heart and lived out his Christianity to make sure that he was a peacemaker. He didn't give up. 
What are we to do? I believe that we are to do this. You see, what history has taught us is that God wants the church involved to bring about change in the areas that are upon his heart. It was the Christian worldview and ideal that rooted out slavery in the first place. Now, I could speak about Roman history, European history, and world history, but let's focus on American history for a moment. Do you realize that while in the black community there was a movement of abolitionism, but they weren't getting all the traction they needed? They needed partners. They needed white folks to come stand with them. You know who stood with them? The very first abolitionists in the white community were who? The Quakers. It was the church that stood in the gap and went public and said, this is not right. It was the black church that met with a representative of Abraham Lincoln to first have the discussion about reparations and restoration. The black church, but it was the church, yes? Jonathan Edwards, famous guy, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Everybody thinks about him as being this super preacher guy. He did a public preaching against slavery in 1791. It wasn't even half a message. It was, slavery is wrong. He interjected himself right into the middle of it. I'm sure a lot of people told him to just stick to preaching. He said, I am, and this is wrong. I need you to remember that Martin Luther King Jr. was a preacher. I got a chance to hear his daughter come in and speak a couple years ago at an event, and she walked up and she said, everybody wants to associate my dad as a civil rights guy. I appreciate that. However, you need to understand he was a pastor first. Everybody wants to take him out of the church context. You can't take my dad out of the church context. He was a church man. One of the most major civil rights leaders of all times came from the pulpit. The church has got to be involved. The church has to show, the church has to get involved in the right areas. It does not mean the church has to support everybody, everything, every method. That's not wise. But it does mean that while there is injustice, the church cannot be silent. So what is our Christian response. Now, we're going to be talking about action next installment, right? We're going to be talking a lot about what do we do with all this? I mean, yeah, okay, so let's say we're convinced that that it is God's will for us to care for those that are hurting. Maybe it is God's will that we get involved and engaged to be able to say there is a certain reformation that needs to occur so that everyone gets to have the same experience. Maybe there's adjustments and tweaks and movements and, and uh, up, you know, upheavals of systems so that we can make it new. Okay, we'll talk about all that, but we can't fit everything into that week. So while we're on the topic of Scripture, I want to tell you, the core values I have. We entitled this series Healing an Ethnically Wounded Nation. That's a pretty big deal. So I got to tell you this, there is only one true healer, and that's Jesus Christ. In other words, it's going to be Jesus and his church that is going to lead the way. It has to be. It cannot be money alone. It can't be politics alone. Jesus can work through those things, but it's Jesus that brings healing, does it not? I want to say again, 
don't allow society to determine what you can and cannot believe. You control the narrative. I stand for this, I stand also for this. I can love them and I can love them. We follow a higher truth that tells us how to heal. I think that we need to refocus on the full Christian gospel, not on forced sides, not on party politics. We need to focus on the full Christian gospel. And I think we need to focus on unity. There's still gonna be gaps, y'all. We're human beings, we're a mess. But wherever there's a gap, I believe that it is Christ's directive that we fill gaps with trust and with love so that we're not causing new irritations and new harm and new hurts. I believe that the responsibility is on us as a church to be able to be the healthy ones. As we begin to close this out, I'll just highlight one last piece. I believe that ultimately God has to take Jericho. Y'all remember the story? They're in the promised land and the first big place they have to attack is Jericho. Jericho, it was known in the area as the impenetrable city. It had walls six feet thick. It had separators. You were never going to get in there. It's one of the reasons why it's such an ancient city. It is one of the most ancient cities in the entire world. Nobody gets in Jericho. It was like we would look at systems, like we would look at problems, and we would say, nobody's going to dismantle that. There's no way we're going to fix that. It's way too deep. What could you possibly do? You're right. God has to tear the walls of Jericho down. Isn't that how the story went? But do you remember how the story went? Because Joshua and Israel still had to march. They still had to go around. You look and you go, well, they were kind of playing a game. No, they were being obedient. And they marched around and around and around. Why? Because Jesus told them to. Was it making any real difference? People are like, it was psychological operations. And it was, you know, all these different things. Here's the deal. God said to do it. And it seemed kind of silly. But they did it anyway. And when they did that, God's way, something began to shake. In my opinion, the angels from the inside out lined that wall and began to rip it apart and shove it down, right? God has to take Jericho. But here's the reality, y'all. The spiritual Jericho has already been taken. How do we know that? Ephesians 2.11 says that God tore down the wall of hostility, that there is no longer two men but one. He bridged that gap, that there is no longer multiple races. There's no longer this whole idea that, oh, I'm totally different than you. We know that we are 99.9% .9 the exact same. We know that. But then Jesus went deeper. He said, because of what I did on the cross, I'm bringing my family together that you are now one. So here's my challenge. I believe that it's time to make the physical match the spiritual reality. If 
it's truly one. Can we just make it look like that? Can we just fix it better than it is right now? I think it's what Jesus' heart would be. A friend of mine, if I named the television show, you know who I'm talking about. He uh, is a bailiff for a uh, judge, television judge. And uh, I was asking him, I said, why is it on the television that when you watch the court cases, the persons that are in the room, the plaintiff and the defendant, will sit there and they will argue vehemently with each other. I mean, they're just going at each other. And the, the person who knows that they're guilty, they know they're guilty, they know that they have lost the case, will just go, I mean, like a flame declaring that they are upset, they are mad, they can't believe that the judge would be so unfair. So I asked my friend, why is that? Because I know that there's a payout if you appear on the show. So why is it that they're still angry and still mad? Nothing's coming out of their pocket. I mean, hey, they get an airplane ticket, they get a hotel, they get paid, you know, from the producers. And he said, because the person who loses the case, they still want to be right, even though they're guilty. They still want to appear right. I think about this in relationship to both our pastor, Pastor Brian, Pastor Matt, the entire team here. I think about the fact that we serve together as a team that are wanting to know God's heart and to hear God's heart for not only our church, but for this region. And there has been a posture that we have taken that says we don't have to be right, that there is room for our misperceptions, misconceptions, misunderstandings. There, there, there is room for where we have made assumptions about one another about our cultures, about our background, and that there is a measure of grace that we extend to each other as we're learning together about what the Holy Spirit wants to do. Uh, when, when I first came to this church, there were those, my brothers and sisters, that made this statement to me. They said, why would you want to go there? It'll never work. But beloved, I'm one who believes that love covers a multitude of faults. That where love is, it takes you down a path of exposing anything that's not like God and causes true transformation to take place. May I be so bold as to prophesy to this place to you who are a part of this church, that it is no accident. It is not a mistake. It's not just something we're going through just to hit another series. There is an intentional heart of God that says he wants to use us as a people to lead change. You and I are now responsible for the things we hear. 
Even the things we struggled through. You know in your own personal devotional time with God, there's things that God says, I require this of you. I want this of you. And we struggle with that. So it is with these mandates or this mandate that God has given us to prophetically be a church of healing where there is brokenness. We can't, listen, we can't withdraw from that. We can't get away from that. We are stuck with the mandate. We're also, I'm stuck with a friend who's just crazy enough to do everything that God tells him to do. <laughs> I told our pastor not long ago, just if, I think it was last week, because after you go through the first session that we've been through, the second session, you're kind of feeling like, ooh, this is rough. Even for me delivering some of the things and hearing and so forth. And, and I shared with him, I said, and I did, man of faith that I am, what in the world are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> it's not important that we be right. It's important that we be obedient. It's not important that we be right. It's important that we be obedient. I want, as we prepare to transition in just a moment, to just lead us in a time, as it were, of responding to what I believe what Pastor was sharing tonight. And it was intentional that I wanted him to take more time to just walk us through because as we were reviewing and I was listening to his heart, it was clear to me that what he had to share was a mandate to the house, a mandate to us who represent a larger community. So I wanted him to take the liberty in doing so. I told him, I said, that's the message. That's the message. And it is. And it then invites us to give an ancient response of God's people who, after hearing the word, and now we are giving the mandate to take action upon what we have heard. Faith and works together that we respond with open hearts before our God. I want to invite us to do so. Let's do this. Let's just follow the leading of the Spirit and do this. Would you just slip to your feet? Just slip to your feet. And just take your hands in a posture of surrender and Openness turned upwards towards God. And as I pray, would you just agree with me, agree with pastor, agree with our leadership here, that we will be a people who will just open our hearts totally to God. Whatever he wants to do, the Holy Spirit can do it through us. We don't have to understand all of it. We don't have to have the details. It doesn't have to be all mapped out for us. We simply have to say yes to God. And in that yes, he uses us for his purpose. So, Father, thank you. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for what you will do. We bless you in the wonderful name of Jesus. Holy Spirit, fill us.
with boldness. Fill us with hearts that are open to everything you want to do in us, through us, and towards others. Forgive us, O oh God, of our own sin, of prejudice, segregation, implicit bias. Whether we did it intentionally or out of ignorance, God, forgive us. We want to be believers and sons and daughters of the king for real. Oh, God, send your help. If you go with us, there's nothing that will keep the walls from Jericho from falling down. Oh, we give you praise and we bless you. Keep those hands uplifted and just simply, some of you know this, just sing it right with me. It's this old song we sing in the African-American heritage. It's, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Come on, you sing it. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. One more time. Yes, Lord, lift those voices. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Give him praise. He's worthy of it. Go ahead. Give him praise. You may be seated. That's our prayer, isn't it? Yes, Lord. It's our joy now to welcome that's going to share with us his heart. And I've had an opportunity to know this young man for some time, for a long time, actually. And he serves as an executive of Robo Bank here in Roseville and also a wonderful, faithful member and his lovely wife who's with us tonight of Center of Praise Ministries. Would you welcome Andre Jordan? Good evening, everyone. All right. Now, you may have done this already, but just take a few seconds to greet the people around you. About five seconds. Go ahead, proceed. Okay. So, in that about five to seven seconds, I've seen everything from a warm smile, a head nod, even a few giving a few handshakes. 
the diversity in something as simple as a greeting. Some of the things I'm going to share with you today comes down to the point of being seen and being recognized. There's US researchers that said the brain can process information about 300 millionths of a second. So in that time frame, you can take in information, start processing and developing a perceived understanding of something and come to a concrete belief about it. And in this high-tech, low-touch digital age that we live in, we're constantly bombarded with a lot of information that kind of desensitizes us to the realities in which other people live. And as a result, we govern ourselves accordingly. Sometimes uh, going back into the recesses of our bubbles, not having to deal with the issues of the masses. I'm a proud member of the United States Air Force Reserve. I'm a first lieutenant stationed here at Bill Air Force Base, and I'm a logistics readiness officer. And I, thank you. And one of the things that I will say as it pertains to this particular uh, series, and first, I, let me take a step back. I want to first extend a thank you to the Bridgeway family, Pastor Lance, Bishop Lovelace, for just providing the opportunity for me to come speak and share my story. So as a military member, there are certain protocols that come along with our call to duty. And I've experienced only serving for the last four years racism, discrimination that I thought was only a part of the history books. I'm a crazy 80s baby. So I've heard of all the stories of the civil rights movements. I've seen the videos, the documentaries, but I figure, you know, I'm an 80s baby. I'm not gonna experience any of this in my lifetime. That's ancient history. But being a military service member, I do recognize that I am also placed into a position of stewardship over people and assets and actually have the fortunate opportunity to see many different facets of this human race. And in that, people bring their perceived notions, their, their false pretenses, and that plays out in how you interact with one another. And one of the most compelling experiences that I've had as a military member was when I became a commissioned officer. So for those that may not be too familiar on the military structure, you have the enlisted force and you have the officer corps. And the officer corps is pretty much the management function of the military. And with that, you are bestowed particular privileges. Um, there are certain customs and courtesies that are extended to you that aren't to others. One being the rendering of a salute. I recall being at Maxwell Air Force Base in the deep south. And for some reason, the military loves to put you in training in the deep south. I don't know if it's because of the intense humidity that causes people to act a certain way, or if they're trying to replicate uh, more so of the in-theater environments when you're overseas and are in the desert. When I became a military commissioned officer, one of the things that they told us is be prepared for the salute. You'll have enlisted members all around you on base, and they're going to be very excited to render that salute to you and you may, at your first opportunity, send it back. Others, you see a whole core of people coming out of the dining facilities, run for your car, run for a building, because you don't want to stand as 75 troops walk past you taking 20 minutes. But one of the things that was interesting to me, I met a gentleman who was of my senior. And again, I am in my mid-30s, and this gentleman was in more of his senior years of life, as well as his military career. And as I was passing him, I saw that he had some physical challenges recognizing who I was. Not by face, not by the name tapes, but by my rank. And this gentleman wasn't of African-American descent. 
And as we pass by, there's normally a customary rule is once you get in six feet of an officer, you render your salute. So as I'm walking towards him, he's walking towards me, I'm anticipating his right arm to extend from beneath his waist over the right side of his chest to the tip point of his hat, and then we pass by an exchange. But he didn't. And that caused me to stop dead in my tracks to figure, what did I miss? Did he not see me? We're walking down the same path. And as I stopped this gentleman, I said, excuse me, sir, sergeant, did you not see me? And this is not anything for me to boast my rank above his, but it's something that is customary as you see another officer to render the appropriate salute. And as I had this conversation with him, and it was just a two-minute conversation as we stood there in the quad, I said, what seems to be the problem? And he said, and I appreciate his honesty, he says, it's kind of hard for me to salute your people. This is 2017 at the time. What do you mean, my people? We're all wearing the same BDUs. And he says, sir, I must apologize, but the way I was raised, your folks didn't have positions of power. And I didn't have to recognize, and even if you did, kind of taken back to try to figure out how, as an officer, do I handle this situation without having my own emotional enragement overtake the situation and cause it to go south. So then I said to him, okay, in understanding that, sir, how long have you been in the military? Oh, sir, I've been serving for 19 and a half years, almost 20, about to get out soon. Well, thank you for your service. But in your time of service, you've never met another African-American officer? He said, sir, I've met plenty of them. And in many tours of duties, I've met many officers, but I've never met any young ones. Fair enough. So to say the least, in that experience as an officer, I recognize that, again, we still have our prejudices and our false pretenses that govern how we behave and interact with one another. I am also an educator. I teach business law and micro and macroeconomics at the local community college level. I purposely grow my facial hair out because every first day of class, people think I should be taking the class rather than teaching the class. <laughs> but it's in the course of going through the wonderful subject of economics, which everyone loves, right? That I start to realize that I am dealing with a diverse audience. Everyone coming from their Sadie Hawkins dance in high school to those that are returning from the workforce to gain more valuable skills for their future endeavors. And every single semester, I'm constantly shocked at some of the responses I get from my students. We just finished a six-week, oh, sorry, eight-week, rather, course here at Los Rios in Sacramento. And I had a lady. She was my oldest, oldest, I shall say, more seasoned <laughs> student I've ever had. She was 73 years old, completing her AA degree to go on to UC Davis this fall. And she came up to me, she said, Professor Jordan, I want to say that I apologize for my behavior. And I am completely mystified as what she's talking about. She's one of my top performing students. She says, I purposely did not engage with you as often as I would like to because you're African-American. Mind you, this is 2018 now. And I'm thinking, what have I done? What may have I said? Was it the supply and demand graph that you saw so often that caused this frustration? Like, what is it? And again, I purposely engage in these conversations with people just to try to figure out where is the bottom line to all this? She says, well, to be honest with you, in my upbringing, she was from the Midwest. She says, we didn't take too kindly to your folks 
as she was taught. And so in these interactions that I have on a daily basis, I'm constantly reminded that what Pastor Lovelace and Bishop Lance talked about isn't of the history books, it's present day. And as me being of a younger generation, I can't separate myself from that one way or the other. When there's a routine traffic stop, they're not asking to see my master's degree or my professional certifications or a, wife, a picture of my wife and three beautiful children. That does not come into play. And so as I continuously mature through life and trying to understand how to reconcile this divisive environment in which we live in, I can't help but to go back to scripture. And I will have to piggyback on what pastor said. When, he, when the disciples asked him, what is the greatest commandment? And he lists off the greatest two. And under all these things, we should govern ourselves. But the thing that's most compelling to me is when Jesus gave that same message with a little bit of twist on the eve of his arrest. He says, love one another as I have loved you. Because before, it was love your neighbor as you loved yourself. But I'm obviously seeing, that even in today's society, that there's an absence of love for oneself. So how can you give what you don't have? So then now to proceed onto a lifestyle to where you say, Love one another as I have loved you, that sacrificial, enduring, agape love. And when it comes to our daily interactions, we're not trying to take over the world in one day. But in every opportunity that you get to showcase love, kindness, gentleness, understanding, then you will obviously see the fruits of that come to fruition, where there's greater fellowship, more intimate fellowship, genuine fellowship. And as a result, we will continuously see the progress in which we preach about on Sundays, but somewhat struggle to deal with Monday through Saturday night. So as I stand before you, I'm excited at the opportunity that you all are engaging, actively engaging, because the conversation isn't easy, nor is it meant to be. It is purposefully uncomfortable. But it's in that where you start to see movement, start to see dynamics that probably wouldn't present itself otherwise. So my prayer to you, is that as you go through your daily interactions with whomever, whether it's in the job front, in your home, or in church, keep a higher level of acuity as to your surroundings. Take inventory as to how maybe some of the things you were taught and try to unlearn those things and replace that with that continual mandate to love one another as Jesus has loved you. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here with you uh, this evening. When Pastor Lance asked me to uh, come and talk about uh, this subject, uh, this is a very difficult subject. So I commend you for being here and uh, for taking all of this in. It is challenging, but it is necessary. Um, in my take on this, uh, God had been shaping in my life since I was born uh, this passion, this burden, specifically for uh, the Latino immigrant. Um, and it's something that I didn't realize, but of course how the Lord guides our lives along the way, getting us to a place where we become aware of what he's calling us to do. 
and how our past is so important in shaping us and forming us for it. And uh, when I grew up, uh, I grew up in a home where uh, my dad and mom, Latinos, uh, they were in ministry. I grew up in ministry. Uh, but my father was a third generation uh, born and raised here in the United States in Texas, uh, third generation Latino here in the United States. But my mom was an immigrant from Mexico, Monterey, Mexico. And when she was 18, she came to L.A. and she went through all the struggles in her day that the immigrants go through. Um, and through that, God worked in her life in such a way that she didn't know the Lord personally. But those struggles that she went through uh, really led her to open her heart and her life to Christ. And uh, one of her co-workers led her to the Lord. Uh, she was going through such a difficult time in her life. And later on, she was called to ministry. She really felt a passion to preach the word of the Lord. And after that is when she met my dad in ministry. He was uh, a pastor of another church. Uh, while she was in South Texas, she moved from L.A. to South Texas. That's where they met. And uh, later on, it's history. You know, uh, I'm the youngest of five. And growing up in our home, of course, there was a lot of tradition, a lot of culture, of the Mexican culture, especially from my mom's side. Um, so I was very enriched with that. But the challenging things that I went through were when we were out in public and the times that I would see my mother be discriminated that was a challenge for me, uh, not knowing and not fully understanding how this was forming and shaping me for my future. Um, but I would see this happen many times. My mom learned English. Uh, she was fluent in English, but she had a strong accent. So every time she would talk, uh, there were times where either it be at a store, either it be at a bank, either it be wherever she was, when she would speak to someone else, there, were, there was a, 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 a reaction from people. And then at times there was even reactions, a negative reaction, discriminatory reactions toward her uh, of, of racism. Uh, there was some people that would talk, you know, uh, uh, behind her back, but you could hear them saying, why, is it, why doesn't she go back to her country? And why, is, why are these people here trying to take our resources and so forth and so on? And my mom went through all of these things. But one of the things that I, I learned from my mom is that my mom was a hard worker. And she honored this country and she honored this nation. And she went through uh, her difficulties as an immigrant. Um, and later on, she became a resident and she did all the things that she needed to do. But it wasn't easy for her because she had a lot of resistance doing this. Now, times have changed, definitely, and the laws uh, still continue to be very difficult for immigrants. And the reason why I say this is because I've experienced this firsthand, not, in as, not as an immigrant, but years later, fast forward to years later, 1995, my wife and I go into ministry, and the first church we pastor is a small congregation uh, in a small city uh, named Orange Cove in the Fresno Valley. And what we encountered there were farm workers and field workers that were immigrants that worked very hard just to get bread over their tables and to be able to feed their families and provide for their families. Uh, now, I've heard many stories of why they came and the reasons why they came, and it, it, it impacted me because I didn't know. I only knew my mom's story uh, of the reasons why she came, but 
when I heard their stories, it impacted my life. And not only because of hearing their stories, but actually being with them and walking with them experiencing what they've experienced, the times where they've even asked me to go with them to hearings where they were uh, going through their immigration process and the difficulties that they went through impacted me because then I had to come back and preach to this congregation. What do I tell this congregation uh, when they were powerless to move and change things? Of course, we know God is all powerful, (laughs) but yet these people needed hope. But at the same time, when we talk about that, some people say, well, God is on whose side then? (laughs) Aren't they breaking the law? But many of them came here to survive. And many of them have come here so that they can really not only just survive, but build a better future for their generations. And one of the beautiful things about this is that many of them wouldn't have known Jesus if they didn't come here. My mom wouldn't have. I know that for a fact. She was impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ when she came. And she, it was very difficult for the gospel to reach her and her family. But my mom knew the Lord in the States. And when she went back to visit years later, that entire family came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And not only that family, there is an entire region that my mom evangelized later when she went back to Mexico, having services in the homes of several of my aunts and uncles. And the Lord brought a revival through her. And I think, you know, what would have happened if she would have been deported back? What would have happened if she would have, you know, uh, uh, she wouldn't have had, you know, the, the favor that God gave her and the sense of opening doors for her? But I will tell you this, we never know the reasons why, but our job is to love people no matter what. Our job is to love the immigrant and all people. We see that in Scripture, in the Old Testament and in the New. We see that in Scripture, in the Old Testament, the Lord directed himself to the people of Israel to love the immigrant, to welcome them. And we see that as Pastor Lance spoke of Matthew chapter 25. Of when they said, when have we received you, Lord? When have we welcomed you as that immigrant? The Lord says, because you did it to them, you've done it to me. This is what the Lord is calling us to do, is to love people. And many times because we don't understand, we judge. Many times because we don't understand, we discriminate. And many times because we're influenced by so many outside forces, we actually fall into the trap also of racism and the systems that we have, sadly, in our nation. But when we truly go after the heart of God, we truly go after what causes God's heart to grieve and what causes God's heart to be moved, and we align with his heart, that's when change will begin to occur. That's when what Pastor Lance talked about, the unity will begin to happen. And this is something that's so powerful because years later, the Lord guided us to plant a church here in Sacramento, not even knowing the experiences that we were going to go through. And the Lord placed that in our hearts to plant a church here in Sacramento 10 years ago. um, We're grateful for Center of Praise. We're grateful for Bishop Parnell Loveless for giving us a home to start and launch our church in. 
Four years later, we launched out into other community, another community. And the interesting part of that is that God had given us growth. Many, many Hispanics, many Latinos, Spanish-speaking people. Of course, we had a big number of undocumented that were a part of that. And many of them came to know Jesus. And many families were restored. And many lives were touched. And many of those people, they, didn't, they, they, they don't live here to break laws. They live here to set the things right in their lives. And to do better for themselves and their families. And even more so, because they want to honor God. And we've gone through challenges. We've gone through struggles with them. We've, we've, we've been the voice that they have needed because they haven't had one. We've represented them when they had no representation. I was just preaching earlier today about this. When Nehemiah found out about what was happening back in Jerusalem without the walls to protect the city, he was so moved. His heart was grieved, but he didn't just stay there. He fasted and prayed to God for God to give him, so that God would give him direction. And the Lord gave him an assignment. And he never knew. He, I don't think it was ever his plan to become the governor <laughs> of Judah. Or even fully know the impact that was going to happen by him rebuilding the walls. But he allowed the injustices that were happening to his people to shake in him, to move him, to do something about it. I'm hoping that what you're hearing today will move you to do something about it. Because all of what's happening right now is interwoven with an opportunity that God is giving us to be able to make a difference. I love what Pastor Lance says. The church needs to lead the way. We need to lead the way. So I appreciate you all for what you're doing here today and what you're about to do after this. God bless.